is next week <clears throat> so I think that it would be very important to have a real understanding of what Purim is now what I'm going to tell you tonight is that the story of Purim really is not about what you think it is I mean the story is very obvious uh, you have a villain called Ahasuerus and Haman. You have a hero which is Mordechai and you have a heroine which is Esther. Right? Uh, so what it clearly the storyline basically is that Haman wants to commit genocide on the Jewish people obviously and um, <clears throat> he gets Ahasuerus's permission and of course Mordechai finds out, finds out and um, somehow uh, he's able to save the Jewish people because there are obviously certain miracles which occur. <clears throat> so <clears throat> if, you, if you had to ask yourself what idea uh, encapsulates the story of Purim, uh, or probably everybody would say what's called Hatzalah, rescue. Right? You'd say rescue. The Jewish people were rescued from a certain genocide. And would that be true? Of course it's true. That is the story. <clears throat> but what I'd like to do is bring you down to a deeper level. The real essence of Purim is not about rescue, really. That sounds stunning. What do you mean? That's what the whole storyline is. But as you'll see, it's not really about rescue. It's about something else. In fact, what it is about is something which underlies every Jewish holiday. What is that? And you can understand what the formula is. <clears throat> the formula for a Jewish holiday is that there is an event that occurs that is supposed to address a spiritual uh, necessity. That's the purpose of the event. Everything really in the end is for that purpose where the Jews in some way address a spiritual necessity and they hopefully accomplish it and as a result of that, God enters creation with a greater illumination. And that's really the purpose, is to bring God back into creation. That is really what the task of the Jewish people is. And that is called Tikkun, to rectify creation. Because creation now is devoid of the presence of God. And it is the task of the Jew, by adhering to God's will, which are the mitzvahs, and so on, and what that does is the more we adhere to his will, the greater is his presence. And ultimately what happens in the end is the Mashiach will usher in that presence that the Jewish people have been testifying to the will of God, testifying to through the mitzvahs for thousands of years. It's really a very simple story when you think about that. You see, God says, I'm out of here. You can bring me back if you listen to my will. And then person listens to his will. He does the task that God assigns him. And guess what? God comes back. God comes back, right? Everything changes, obviously. Because the divine presence is something that we cannot comprehend, really. What happens when it's full-blown. Which is what happens 
in the Messianic era, because that's what the Mashiach does. He brings God back in response to all the things that the Jews did for thousands of years. That's really the whole storyline of Judaism, if you think about that. Obviously, it's really, obviously, much more complex, but in its basic uh, uh, line, storyline, that's really what it is. Therefore, what God is always confronting the Jews with is some type of an event. And that event, if the Jews correctly adhere to the event, will bring God back closer. And that's the spiritual necessity, is for God to come closer. You see? Now, if the Jews don't do that, what happens? Guess what? God is a tough person. He must have the Jews uh, adhere to the spiritual necessity. They must do it. So what God will do is create a secondary event. Another event. You see? And he will again put the Jews in that situation. And the Jews again are tested in the very event that was the first event. And if they again succeed, then of course that rectifies the failed attempt of the previous event. See the way it works? Basically every holiday is that. It is a secondary attempt. I'm going to show you how it works with Purim. But the truth is, this is the formula for every, si every single secondary event, every single event that we have. I don't care if it's Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt, the uh, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. That's basically what it is. <clears throat> now, obviously there are many questions that we have in Purim. Now what's important is that all the mitzvahs, the commandments, about a holiday are in essence connected to the spiritual event that they have to do. It's not that all of a sudden God decided, well, on Pesach you have to eat matzah, you have to avoid chametz. No. Matzah and chametz in some way are intimately and essentially connected to the Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, which is the Exodus. That's the way it works. And we will see. So we can take a look and ask ourselves, okay, let's take a look at some of the mitzvahs on Purim. Uh, well, first question I can ask, like I said, is what is the essence of Purim? I mean, really the essence of Purim. You know, don't tell me because it allows you a chance to eat homotashin. Don't tell me that, right? And that part of the Suda. And of, co of course, these are all important in that sense, you know. But what is the core, the essential idea of Purim? That's the first question. Then you have interesting mitzvahs. For instance, you have what's called Mishloach Bonus. There's a mitzvah, right, to give two gifts of food, right, to one person. That's a nice idea. What does that have to do with Purim? You see? I mean, these are great ideas. But remember, the mitzvah in some way has to be connected to the essential concept of what the holiday is, what Purim is. So, Mishloach Manas, what does that have to do with Purim? Another idea, right, is Matonis Le'ev Yoinim, where you give, you know, uh, uh, a charity, some gift to um, a poor man, you know. Now again, it's a great idea, it's a real chesed. What does that have to do with Purim? You see? Is it just because it's a chesed? And God said, well, I want you to do chesed. And the chazal, the rabbis, uh, said, well, we want you to do that. No. It's much more profound than that. And the only way we can understand the mitzvahs themselves is by understanding the essence of Purim. Or else you will not, you will forever observe Purim 
in an incredibly superficial way. Then you have other questions which are really very interesting. You see, why is Purim called Purim? Now we know the word Purim means lots or lottery. And Haman, when he was deciding how to kill the Jews, or rather when to kill the Jews, he cast lots, you know. First he put down all the months, and he picked one out, and guess what? It was Adar, right? And then he put down all the days, and guess what? It came out to be, you know, your Gimel, or whatever. It's your Dal, whatever, right? So the way he decided when to kill the Jews, right, was through a lottery. It's lots. But a lottery, is that the essence of Purim? Is that he decided to, to uh, what do you call it, uh, initiate a lottery? What does that have to do with Purim? You know, that's a rather strange name to pick that designates the name of the holiday. You see? But if Chazal called it Purim, clearly that has to be essential in nature. So that is another question. You see? Now, besides that, you have other questions. One of the most interesting is that we know it's a mitzvah, right, to get drunk. To what level? It is a mitzvah to get drunk to the level where you cannot tell the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. Boruch Mordechai and Orohamon. That's how drunk you have to be. You know, where you will confuse it and ultimately say Boruch Haman and Oro Mordechai. I mean, I hope you don't do that. Uh, but that's what it means, Adelo Yoda. You, you cannot distinguish between the two. And he asks himself, what kind of a mitzvah is that? A and B, right? What's after with Purim? It's an incredible mystery. You look at these mitzvahs, you gotta say to yourself, what in the world is going on here? You see, now I wanna tell you something. Some people really love to do mitzvahs, right? So in order to do the mitzvah, what do they do? They get do the mitzvah earlier, right? Mitzvahs, right? It's reason the mitzvahs, right? So they get drunk six months earlier. And because they're in such a joyous way, they guess what? They get drunk and they continue getting drunk six months later. So all because of Purim, they're drunk all year long. Okay, right? <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm sure there are some people like that, you know. But the main idea is, what kind of a mitzvah is it to get drunk on Purim? What's have to do with Purim? You see. <clears throat> So that is obviously a very important question and so on, you know. Also, Chazal say that Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim. What is Yom Kippurim? It's a day of atonement. So Chazal say that Yom Kippurim, that it's a day, Purim, or rather Yom Kippur is a day like Purim. It's a Yom Kippurim, where the word itself actually says Purim. That means Purim is greater than Yom Kippur because Yom Kippurim is... Uh, you know, it's Yom Kippur, right, is a day like Purim, which means Purim is greater and Yom Kippur is less. Now, how do we understand that? Which is astounding when you think about that. You see, <clears throat> also, we know that the name of God is missing in the entire Megillah. Now, that is astounding. Why? How can one of the books of the Bible not have the name of God once in the entire Megillah? That's like, it doesn't make sense. It is completely contradictory, right, to what you would expect. We're not talking about a book. We're talking about one of the Chof Dalad Kisrei of the Torah of itself, of, of the Tanakh. Yet the name of God does not appear once. Only in an illusion when Mordechai says to Esther, you know, if you don't go to the king, then Revach V'Hatzolo, 
salvation and rescue, Yovi B'mokum Acher, will come from somewhere else. Now, who does, like, what's he thinking about? Where's he going to come from? Some ally somewhere? No, he means God. So that's an illusion to the Bunshlam. But the astounding thing is, why would that be an illusion? What happened to God in the Megillah? And this is one of the books of the Bible. So really, I mean, you have to understand how, how bizarre that is. Uh, and then another question is um, something which is always, uh, uh, which people, I sure think about, you know, Look, how do Chazal know when to make a holiday? You know, do you know how many times the Jews have been threatened and saved through the 4,000 years of history? So why is there only one Purim? Think about that. How do Chazal know when to make a holiday? You see, they could have made, who knows how many holidays, 100 times, because that's how many times the Jews were threatened, right? Throughout Jewish history. So how do they know? Is it guessing? Do they spin... Uh, you know, a dreidel, and they say, you know, okay, if it's gimel, it means uh, we do it, and if dollar, you know, whatever it is, you know. There's got to be a better way to do this. You see? What do they base it on? It's a very interesting question. And obviously, they decided that Purim is going to be a holiday. And the question, of course, is why? Okay. I've asked, I think, nine questions. Hopefully, they really jogged your, you know, curiosity. Because when you think about it, uh, the mitzvahs of Purim have nothing to do with Purim. You know? Except, like I say, eating homantashen. Because that's homan. And even that has to be asked. Why do we have to eat a homantash? What, do we want to eat the guy? Like, what is that supposed to be all about? You know what I'm saying? Anyway, <clears throat> these are the questions that one can certainly ask and so on. So, how do we begin to understand? <clears throat> it all starts off 900 years earlier than Purim. Let's take a look. God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. Matan Torah. Correct? Okay. So he gives them the Torah. And the, what the Jewish people said in response to that is a superlative acceptance. They said Nasev Nishma. Nasev Nishma means, right, that not only will they, well, they say Nasev, we will do it, and then we will first try to understand it, means they so trusted God that they in no way, they were not going to reject it because they didn't understand it. You see, that's, that the acceptance of the Torah was incredible, was a very great type of acceptance. Nasev Nishma. Now, what is strange about that is that there is now a Chazal that tell us it says Vayichen Shom Yisrael Negedahor and Israel encamped underneath the mountain. So Chazal learned an incredible uh, event that God took the whole Mount Sinai, right, the mountain. He ripped it off its base as only God can do. He takes the mountain and he lifts it over the Jewish people, and he says, "If you accept my Torah, fine." If you don't, guess what? I drop the mountain and you die, all of you. The whole client's world was threatened by death if they do not accept the Torah. Well, obviously the Jewish people were wise, right? And as they say, God made them an offer they couldn't resist. And of course, they accepted the Torah. Now that is an incredible contradiction, right? What is the contradiction? It's just Nasev Nishma, that they accepted it out of love. 
they accepted it out of love. So then why would God threaten them with a, a compulsion? If you accept it, fine. If not, I kill you all. I will drop the mountain, and there you are. Because it says, Tachasahor. It should say, it should have said, next to the mountain. What's this underneath the mountain? So that's how Chazal learned this event. Which is a complete contradiction to the fact that the Jews accepted it with love. You see. That's a very important question. And Teisvis, in Mesech the Megillah, answers it. What he says the following. He says that the Jews accepted with love the written law, Tershav Ksav. But when God said, wait a minute, there's a whole commentary, there's a lot of details that follow, right? Which is the oral law, the Jews said, no way. So what God did is he took the mountain, like I said, put it over the head and says, no, 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 no. You accept the oral law, if not, I kill you all. So at least it answers the contradiction. So the written law they accepted with love, Nasav and Ishma. It was the oral law that they refused to accept. And they had to accept on the threat of death. That's the concept of what happened. Now, what does that mean? It means that the Jews, as part of the spiritual necessity, had to accept all of the Torah. And that would rectify, right, a tremendous, uh, you know, a, a deficiency in creation. Because it would have meant that a nation was willing and they decided we will subject ourselves to the will of God no matter what it is that's really what Nasser and Ishma is right <clears throat> that's a tremendous uh, what do you call it uh, a tremendous uh, level of, of spirituality and therefore that would have brought in God a tremendous amount into the creation itself that would be a tremendous tikkun advancement had they accepted the Torah completely but when the Jews said, no way, we don't want the oral law, just the written law, right? And God had to force them. And of course, they accepted it because they were compelled. But since they did not accept it, right, willingly and with love, uh, then they created a tremendous what's called pagam, a defect in creation. The spiritual necessity of saying we want to do the will of God, which wasn't done, because they did not accept the oral law, right? That is a tremendous damage. Damage in the sense that what should have happened, a tremendous uh, uh, entrance and illumination by God, failed, never happened, because the Jews did not accept the Torah willingly. Uh, you see, that's what it means. There is a pagam, a pagam is a defect. There's a defect in the service of the Jews, in the tikkun of the entire creation. Now that cannot stand, uh, because what God wants was a complete acceptance of His Torah. And that's really what it is. It's not just the acceptance of the Torah. It's a far larger concept that we are willing to do what God wants, even if we, don't, we have no idea. That's a tremendous madrigo level of holiness, you see. In any case, uh, therefore, we're now at the point at Matan Torah, where God said, Yes or no, you take it. If not, you die. And they create a tremendous spiritual defect. So the question now is, so now what's God going to do? The Jews must complete that uh, mitzvah or that <clears throat> uh, task. They must accept the, Jew, the, the, the Torah completely. So what's God going to do? So herein begins the real story. <coughs> 
What we have to ask ourselves is before you can go into how God is going to rectify this, you see, and you obviously are beginning to understand the Purim story is the rectification. In fact, what's interesting is that the Purim story is a setup. It should never have happened, as I will show you. In fact, had not the Megillah wrote, written that there was this story, I would never have believed it, as I will show you, that it actually occurred. That's how unlikely it was. So Purim is the setup where the God has given the Jewish people a second chance. It's really what it is. I'm going to give you a second chance. It's called Purim, that event. And in that event, if you do the right thing, you will have rectified, corrected, restored, you see, the entire idea of the fact that you did not accept the entire Torah willingly. See? So you now have the answer. But what's the logic in the answer? Right? So what we have to ask ourselves is a very important idea. Why? Why didn't the Jews accept it? You see? In fact, they did accept it. Nasev and Ishma. Right? They did accept it. So what was the problem? So take it all. You know what I'm saying? You knew it was a gift of, a gift of God. Right? And you know that what God wants. And you are aware of the unbelievable spiritual height that they received. There's many Midrashim that say when they said Nasev and Ishma, the angels came and took two crowns spiritual crowns and put it on the head of every Jew that's how high they had come by accepting it so the, why did they say no? this is a very important question to, answer, to ask uh, what is the underlying reason why they said no? now you by the way as an aside you may say well wait a minute the Goyim the non-Jews they could say wait a minute you should have done that to us put the mountain on top of our head and I guarantee you we would have accepted it you see? So what, 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 why are they privileged, right, ultimately, to be the bearers of God's presence, you know? We could also. And the answer is because there's a difference. The Jews accepted part. So God said, uh-uh, I want you to accept all of it, so I'm going to force you to take the second half. The Goyim, as the Medrash says, rejected all of the Torah. So since they rejected everything, including the written law, God did not bother with compulsion. So you have to at least accept something. You see? Then what God will say, you must accept everything. You see? So that answers that question. But the question is a very powerful question. Why didn't they accept the oral law? And it's a very important concept. Once you understand the concept, you'll begin to understand what Purim truly is. Purim is nothing more than a makeup test. You see? That's called Purim. That had to happen in order to rectify that defect. So, the question is, why didn't they accept it? And the interesting concept is this. What is the Torah, really? You know, we know it's mitzvahs and so on. It's a document written by God, Moshe Rabbeinu at the behest of God and so on, right? But the interesting thing about that, about Purim, okay, is that um, the Torah is written, of course, by God. We know that, you see. But, what is the Torah really? The Torah basically is an instrument to get you into Ilm Habo. It's really what it is. The Torah is written not so you can enjoy this world. It's written ultimately that you can enjoy a dimension which is completely spiritual. Completely spiritual. 
So the Torah is the path to spirituality. That's really what it is. Except it's done by what? By interacting, right, with the physical world. That's really why. There are many religions that have nothing to do with the physical world. You know, for instance, monks, you know, up in the, uh, uh, the uh, where, where they are and so on and so forth. Their whole idea is to avoid the physical world. So what they do is they separate themselves from society. But Judaism says no. The task is, or the trick is, to interact with all the physical world and dedicate it to God. What a difference. That's why you'll notice every mitzvah is really what? Is nothing more than a physical act, right, that you need to do, and you do it because God commanded it. That takes the physical act and channels it to bring in an enormous amount of holiness into your neshama. Judaism is a very physical religion. You see, all the mitzvahs are connected in some way with physical life. Why? Because the challenge is to take the physical, elevate it, right, to the spiritual. And the way you do that is to do the mitzvah, right, with the intent that you're doing it because God wants you to do it. And automatically you elevate that physical aspect of the physical world. And what happens after that is astounding. When the Mashiach comes, what happens is after Mashiach actually, is the physical world will change and become purified into a spiritual world. We don't realize that, but here is Oilam Habo. The future world is here. And the way you do it is you have to change the Oilam Hazeh, which is a physical world, into a spiritual world. It's a transformation process. And how you do it? Because you've interacted with the spirit of physical world and you've made it spiritual. You see, except it doesn't happen right away. But at a future time, after the Mashiach, the entire universe, physical universe, will become transformed into a spiritual domain. You see, it becomes translucent and then a shama shines right out of the body. There is no more physical barrier. But anyway, so what the Jews understood is what? Is that the Torah is a device that gets into Ilam Abba, no problem. You see, so they said, what do we need all these mitzvahs for? What do we need so many details? You see, for what? To be able to have civilization? To be able to live amongst each other? We don't need that. All nations of the world have laws, and that's how they survive. What does that mean? Okay, mankind either lives, either you live alone, or you live in a society. You gotta decide. Obviously, all of us live in a society. We don't live alone, right? So, in order to live in a society, why? Because we cannot fulfill all our needs individually. You know, if I need uh, a shoemaker, I'm not going to become a shoemaker. You know, I'll hire a shoemaker. You know, if I need uh, somebody else or whatever. In other words, we need other people to help us fulfill our needs. Obviously, right? What's the greatest need of society? Because of this. And the answer is, the preservation of society. Society has to be preserved, right? Therefore, there are all kinds of laws. Property laws, right? Right? Laws of kidnapping and certain laws of morality. You know what I'm saying? Or else, imagine if there were no laws, you know what happens. It's pandemonium, right? Then everything is broken down. The whole civilization, society, is over. So therefore, we live by laws in order to preserve society. Because that's why, how we can survive and make our needs met. You see? That's a very important idea. Therefore, what we see is something very interesting. That the laws of a society are legal, not just. 
They may be just sometimes. In other words, laws have nothing to do with justice. They try to emulate justice once in a while. But if you think about it, it's really legal. When something is legal, it means it's unlawful. Illegal, it's unlawful. What do you mean it's unlawful? It means it's against the law. But does that have anything to do with the justice? Justice, do you have any idea how many laws are unjust? Just take a look at where we live. You know how many laws are in this society are unjust or unjust? Or in America and so on? Because the laws don't concern itself really with justice. Mishpat, tzedek 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 Justice, justice, you shall pursue. It really concerns itself with what? The preservation of society. You see, so laws are legal, but they do not necessarily have to be just. And there are many laws that are unjust, clearly unjust, but they've been enacted for whatever reason, you see. So what the Jews said is, wait a minute, you see, look, you know, what we want is what? We, we don't need laws. Why? So many details. Because all societies have laws. Why? Because they need that to preserve. So why can't we observe the laws of society? What do we need spiritual, what do we need mitzvahs for? A mitzvah will get you into Ilam Haba. But survive in Ilam Hazeh, this world, right? We don't need those mitzvahs, right? Let us just follow the laws of society. You see, it's true. I mean, America has what? Thousands and thousands of laws. You see? Israel has thousands of laws. All societies have to have laws. Right? Because that's how you preserve the society. So the, what the Jews felt is, what do I need this ton of mitzvahs for? Because the oral law adds an enormous amount of volume to the mitzvahs. You see? And many of them are the, for the preservation of society. The Hochesh Mishpat, Eben and so on. Laws of marriage, laws of damages, and so on. You see, hey, let me just follow the society I live in. Why do I need so many laws? Because it doesn't really have anything to do with Oilam Habo, the future world. It's all about preserving the, the, this world, so therefore I can watch, I can go after, or observe the laws of society. That was the problem. That the Jews did not really understand the necessity that the laws of the Torah are not because of, you know, preservation of society. That the mitzvahs themselves allow you to reach Oilam Habo, even though it looks like it's preserving society. Why? Because the laws of the Torah are just. This is the true, what's called uh, uh, tzedek. That's why. And the Jews did not understand that. And what they said, in, in many ways, makes sense. You see, they didn't want laws of civilization when I can copy it from somebody else. Because I'm not doing Ilm Habo, the future world. Fine. We'll observe the mitzvahs that are clearly spiritual. But why do we have to observe all the details, a ton of mitzvahs that don't seem to be related? It's an important idea, you see. But God said to them, and He said, you will understand one day the nature of the laws of society. That it's legal and not just. So therefore, if you want to live in society, you must observe the Torah. It's only justice that allows civilization to survive, not legality. Now how is he going to teach that to the Jews? Right? Where they will accept the entire Torah. Well, guess what? Since he's God, he can do whatever he wants. So he creates a scenario, you see, where the Jews will, be, will live in a civilization.
Now before that, they could never be shown the laws of Goyim because for most of the hundreds of years, they lived in Eretz Israel under their own kings, right? And then finally when Nebuchadnezzar came in, you know, with, and put them in exile, then there were slaves in, 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 in Bovel. Even there, the laws are not the same for a slave as it is for a free man. The first time they achieved free men status, right, was in Persia, under Ahasuerus. Then they were free, they were not slaves, you see, and they would be subject to the laws of Persia as free men. So God said, watch what type of laws these are, you see. And then all of a sudden, they had this edict. What was the edict? Well, Ahasuerus says, right, and the Grand Vizier Haman announces, all of you will die on the 13th, 14th, and so on. You see? Now, what was the reaction to the Jews for this? It's astounding. Uh, were the Jews afraid? Yes and no. The first thing, they were not afraid at first. They were shocked. Imagine you live in America, and all of a sudden, the House, the Congress, passes a law, right? That, you know, every Jew that... Everybody can kill a Jew without any repercussions on the, you know, the 13th day of Ador. What do you think all the Jews in America would do? Come to Israel? <laughs> yes, huh? Uh, but what would happen? What would be the reaction? The reaction would be total shock. Why? How could they do this? Is he out of his mind? Achashverosh? Forget about Haman. He's an he's a incredible anti-Semite. But Ahasuerus, hey, we're loyal citizens. Where's the proof of that? Because how does the Megillah start? They're all eating at the Sauda, at the festival of Ahasuerus. They joined him in celebrating whatever he was celebrating, right? That's loyal citizens, isn't it? Right? <clears throat> they were loyal citizens of Persia, all of them, you see? And they're joining Ahasuerus in whatever he was celebrating, right? So they're loyal. How can he do this? Not only that, the Jews pay tax. They're loyal buying citizens. What kind of craziness is this? Of what are they guilty of? Nothing. And then they understood something, which they never understood before. You see, that since the laws of a civilization are what they are, they are legal and has nothing to do with justice. Therefore, it can be suspended if the interests of the society especially if it doesn't fall apart, changes. And Ahasuerus wanted the cash that Haman was going to give him. He gave him 10,000 talents of silver, which, which historians estimate the value is easily over $100 million, which is a lot of money in those days. Even now, I imagine, you know, uh, so he was obviously coaxed into doing it because Haman was obviously fabulously wealthy. You know, that shows you all the bribes he was taking as the Grand Vizier, you know. <clears throat> but the Jews were stunned. They were shocked. Because we're loyal citizens. We, didn't, we never committed a crime. Because you decide that you want money, therefore you condemn the whole Jewish people, every man, woman, and child, to death? What is that? Uh, that's an insanity. But wait a minute, but there are laws. Yeah. There are laws that are legal, but not just. And if the king decides he wants to do away with the law because he gets a personal benefit, that's exactly what he'll do. <clears throat> so they realized that the laws of the Torah are not connected really to the preservation of society. It's connected to Olam Haba, 
the future world. Because this is the way God wants you to act vis-a-vis -vis mankind. <clears throat> the reason why we act the way we do isn't to preserve the society, which it looks like it does. No, it's because this is the way God wants to con you to conduct yourself vis-a-vis -vis another Jew. With chesed, just laws, and so on. It is the justice behind the mitzvahs that is the path to ilam habo. You see, just like when you do chesed to somebody, that's a spiritual act. It's not only a physical act, which is when he, you give money to God, but you are exercising what's called tremendous loving kindness. You see, that's chesed. That is the component in the mitzvah of tzedakah that gets you into ilam habo, because that's what God wants. You see, he wants you to behave in a way where you will love your fellow brother. And all these mitzvahs, therefore, have to be just, and they all demonstrate that. You see, it has nothing to do with preservation of society. But society, like Persia, it's all about preservation. That's what it's about, you see? And if all of a sudden the king needs the cash, you go. You see, it doesn't make a difference what you are or what you were, and that you're a loyal citizen. It's irrelevant. This is what stunned the Jews. Shocked. How do you do this to people? You see, especially the millions of Jews in Persia. In fact, it was the last time that everybody, all the Jewish people were under one nation. All the Jews were in Persia. It was the last time that all the Jews would be found under one king. 127 Medinas. After that, they were spread out. So no one man could kill them all. You know, which was very important for the Jewish people. But they were all together under Ahasuerus. For this reason. You see, so the Jews, like I say, were shocked. And of course, then they were frightened. Because you're now dealing with what? The whole country is going to rise up against you and kill you. You see? And they all have the blessings of the king. It's astounding. And then the Jews realized that. You see, <clears throat> what does that mean? What is a civilization really all about? It's nothing more than man's needs. It has nothing to do with true justice, true chesed, and so on. And then what did they decide to do? Of course they took measures. They did tshuva. What was their tshuva? And Chazal tell us now what's something very, very important. You know, what does it say in the Megillah? After Homan was killed, right? It says, It doesn't say, They were rescued. So what should have been the, what, what should have been the joy? That they were rescued. They were not going to be killed. But it doesn't say that. It says, And to the Jews there was, Enlightenment. What enlightenment? It should have said rescue, not enlightenment. This is not a cognitive exercise, right? But that's what it was. They were enlightened, finally. They understood the nature of civilization, right? That it, as long as it benefits people, fine. And as soon as you can change the laws for your own benefit, of course, you will remove the laws, distort the laws, abrogate the laws, and kill you. Uh, and they understood what the Torah really is is that the way God wants a Jew to act to another Jew is spiritual, and so on. It's not for the preservation of society. God will take care of that. You don't. You see, it's a very important concept. And therefore, that's why it says, There was a tremendous enlightenment. That was the enlightenment. That we were wrong. And therefore, what did the Jews do? And then Chazal say, that's why it says in Megillah, Kimu kiblu famous 
where it says that the Jews kimu, right, the kiblu, that they fulfilled that which they accepted 900 years earlier. They actually accepted the Torah balpeh, oral law, with love. Because they saw the unbelievable difference between the Torah and the, the, and the ways of mankind civilization. So what did they do? Wow! They corrected a defect. That's what they did. You see? They corrected the, the, the pagam, the defect that the Jews did when they refused to accept the oral law. But because of this unbelievable enlightenment, they said we are going to do tshuva, repent. And the repentance was what? They didn't do it out of fear. They did it out of love. Because they realized what the Torah really is. And therefore they re-accepted the whole Torah Nasev Nishma, now apply even to the oral law. That's what really the Jews did, you see. And now we see, like I said, I heard them right? And therefore, Kimu Kiblu, which Chazal say, what that means, Kimu, they, they observed, right? The Kiblu and they accepted, means the, the Chazal learned that what they did was they accepted that which they observed for years, but they now re-accepted it out of love. Wow, what a moment. In fact, that moment was so great that the Mashiach could have come right afterwards, which I will explain. In any case, this is the essence of Purim. It's not about Atzala. It looks like it's about rescue. It is really about Tikkun. They rectified a terrible damage that they did 900 years before. What an achievement. We don't even realize the standing that they had in heaven after they accepted, you see. And therefore, as a result of that, that realization is what they basically did and so on, you see. And now we understand something very important. That's why Chazal made it into a holiday. In other words, if Jews are saved and they repent, fine. So they repent, but they don't create a new awe, a new light, a new enlightenment. So that's not a yantav. But since Purim was a rectification from a damage that ensued 900 years earlier, then that is a new rectification. New rectification, that has to be celebrated. That's the formula. Every time Chazal make a holiday, like Hanukkah, which by the way is the same thing, but it's a different tikkun, they make a holiday because it's a new light that ended creation. Very important concept, and so on. Now, Chazal realized that, Okay, and we now can understand many of the questions I ask, how they're all answered. Once you now understand what the essence is, the reaccepting of the entire Torah with love. Okay, now, <clears throat> obviously, if the Jews now realize, right, the terrible uh, um, deficiency of the world, the nations of the world, correct? So then what do we realize? We have to stick together. Gotta stick together. It's a, there has to be an achdus now. Why? Because forget about the world. The Jews wanted to what you know maintain or rather depend on the world's legal system. So they realize what kind of legal system is there. This is not a legal system. It can be turned on its head as soon as the guy decides that he can get that he can overturn it and get rid of it and benefit. So therefore, what the Jews realize is that we only have ourselves, and that's it. There is no other system. It's only us. So Chazal said, 
you need to intensify the achtos. How do you intensify unity among Jews? You give them a gift, right? And that engenders a feeling of love. Therefore, Mishloach Manas. The reason why you give a gift to, two gifts to one Jew, is right, and what is he going to feel about you? You know, he's going to feel what? A tremendous sense of what? Camaraderie, friendship, maybe even love. You see, because giving gifts, each person gives to the other, and it's a mitzvah to do that, automatically creates an intensity of unity and achtos. Because it's either us or nobody else. That's why, you see. And the same thing with tzedakah. What do you give with tzedakah? You give it to a first person, right? And he, of course, will feel tremendously, what? Thankful to what you did. And that will engender a tremendous achtos together. You see? That's the logical idea. That once the Jews realized that nobody cares really about us, you know, and our Torah is the only type of civilization that it can exist, so we have to realize, hey, it's only about us. We have to intensify the achtos. Therefore, Chazal Masakin uh, uh, enacted these two important mitzvahs, which is what? Which is the achdus of Klai Yisrael. It's very important. That's the connection, the logic of the connection to the event itself. You see. Uh, so that's the first thing. Why? You see. Now, um, Purim. Why is it called Purim? You see? It means that he drew lots to decide Haman to kill the Jews. And I'll tell you why. Because Purim was a new lesson in Klai Israel. Until then, when God would interact with the Jewish people, He would always do, always do it openly. Miracles would always happen to the Jews until Purim, when God would no longer act in a miraculous way openly to the Jewish people. Then how would He intervene or interact with Jews? And the answer is the miracle of coincidences. What is a coincidence? Right? Think about that. To us a coincidence is, wow, was I lucky, right? Uh, you know, <clears throat> imagine a guy has to fly to France, right? And there's a holiday in America. He's got to fly to France, let's say, right, to make a great deal, right? And he's got the paper with him, we, who he has to meet at the airport and when, everything, right? Then he goes, flies to France, gets off, he's in the airport, and all of a sudden he searches his pocket, and the note that he had all the information on is, gone. He doesn't know who he has to meet, right? He doesn't know where the guy is. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know the address. Nothing. And guess what? He's about to plot because it's a $10 million deal. Right? So he doesn't know what to do. Right? Well, he doesn't know what to do. I mean, and believe me, it happens, right? And, you know, and, there's no, and he can't call America, right? Because there's a holiday in America. All the businesses are shut. Right? So what does he do? He doesn't know what to do. So he sits down he sits down, you know, and or, or, or he gets on the phone, actually it's a smartphone, you know, so he gets the smartphone, he tries to somehow desperately reach his boss, but he's not, it's not happening, right? Maybe the lines are down, who knows, right? Uh, all of a sudden he hears somebody talking, uh, somebody sitting behind him, and the guy is saying, oh by the way, you know, I have to meet a guy here, I don't know where he is. And he said, and he said, and, he, and he's talking to a guy, and the guy says, unbelievable, that's the guy I have to meet. Now, was that a coincidence? Of course it was. What were the odds that in this humongous airport, this guy would sit right opposite him, right, and he would overhear the guy, had it been off by four minutes, he would never have met the guy. Now that's a coincidence, right? 
It's not a coincidence. It's a miracle. That's what it is. It's called the miracle of coincidence. What is a coincidence? Here's what a coincidence is. <coughs> Two chains of events are occurring, right? And they're completely independent of each other. However, at one point, one event of one chain coincides with the event of another chain, benefiting both sides. It's a coincidence. What are the odds that two independent events that have their own give and take, cause and effect, right, should occur at one point at the exact same time and in the right place and the right time, and because of that, somebody benefits enormously? That's a coincidence, because it never should have happened. <coughs> These are miracles. We don't realize that. We think, wow, am I lucky, right? Right place, right time, and so on, right guy? No, there are Nisam. In fact, more than that, that's exactly the way God runs the world now. He doesn't run it anymore openly, an open display of who he is. That was the miracles of Tanakh, you know, all the Nisam of Tanakh and so on, you know? Today, God runs the world, right, through coincidences. We think it's a coincidence. Really? It's a God intervening and making sure that these two chain of events exactly intersect at the right time. You see? Therefore, the name of God is not in the Megillah. Why? Because God no longer openly saved the Jews. He did it through coincidences. Right? Where do you see God in the Megillah? He didn't save the Jews. You don't find Mordechai having a pro prophetic a prophecy where God appears to Mordechai and says, don't worry, I'll get rid of this guy. Nothing, like, nothing of the sort. What he used to do in Tanakh, how many times did God appear you know, to, to the Nevi'im? There's no Nevu'a here, you see? So the question is, how does it happen? And the answer is, coincidence. Therefore, they named the name of the holiday, Purim, to show you that God saved the Jews in the form or the guise of coincidence. That's why it's named Purim. Because a lottery is coincidence. In fact, you cannot have a greater display of chance than a lottery. It looks like pure luck. You see? Now the question is, wait a minute. You're telling me that the whole Megillah is a coincidence? And the answer is yes. And I will show you. In fact, there are so many coincidences in the Megillah that the Megillah, the story, should never have happened at all. Where do we see this? Let's start from the beginning. You see? One. Okay. How does the Megillah start off? With this humongous su'uda. A dinner. Or, or, you know, a whole, uh, what do you call it? Uh, festival. A banquet, yeah. Okay. So what happens? Right? The king gets drunk. And what does he do? He says, he sends and he says, okay. He's got all the royalty, the dignitaries. I mean, all the who's who sort of, right? And he commands Vashti to appear in a undress, whatever, right? And so on. Now, excuse me, that, that's how it starts. That's what he wanted from Vashti, to appear in that way, right? Which is beyond belief. Why? This is his wife. Why would a guy ask his wife to be undressed in front of everybody else? That's the first thing. It's not, that's, that's what he wanted from Vashti. The second thing, Vashti is not merely his wife. She's the queen. Right? What kind of respect is that for the queen? Right? If you see a queen this way, that's the end of your respect for this woman. 
So he's destroying her authority as queen. The third thing, which is insane, is Vashti was a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So the, the whole claim in, in, uh, in uh, Achishverosh was a commoner. The whole claim of, of uh, Achishverosh to the throne was that he was married to Vashti, right? So you're asking her to do this? And you're asking her to be the claim and you're going to undignify her in front of the masses? Are you out of your box? As they say in the vernacular. You crazy? This, people don't do this. Not, not, people not even as stupid as Akashverosh. They don't do this kind of stuff. Right? Think about that. The unlikeliness of this event. Yet it has to happen. Why? Because he was so angry and drunk that we know Homan advised them, you know, and so on. He had her killed. So that's the beginning. You have to remove her. The way to do this is it comes up with an insane request. Now, how likely is this? None. Nobody does this. Okay. So that's the first coincidence. Is that Vashti is gone. You see. Okay. Now, the second is that, wait a minute. Vashti disobeyed you. You don't kill her because she's your claim to fame. She's a claim to the throne. So the second idea that he had Vashti killed right, is, is unbelievable. She is the reason for his authenticity or authority as the king, because he's a commoner. That's who Akashverosh was. So the second incredible thing, first, first incredible thing, like I said, is that he, he wanted her to appear that way. It's unbelievable. The second thing is because she didn't do it, he had her killed. But wait a minute, she's your claim to the whole throne. Didn't make a difference. So that's a second coincidence, which should never have happened, that he would have her killed. Now, the third coincidence, so what does he decide to do? A beauty contest. But wait a minute. Kings don't marry commoners, right? What they usually do is they do a shidduch with the princess or something of another kingdom, and that's how they make deals. You know, that's how they ally themselves because this king married the daughter of that king and so on. That's what makes alliances, you see? Uh, but wait a minute. He was, he he was going to marry a commoner, right? Because a beauty contest is a commoner. What's his name? George, I forgot the name of the king, 1936. He married, uh, what's her name? Uh, who's good? Wallace. Wallace? Who? Simpson, yeah. He had to abdicate because he married a commoner. You can't do that. And so on. You know, anyway, so he was going to marry a commoner. But wait a minute. That doesn't happen with kings. That's a third coincidence. The fourth coincidence, which never happens, is a beauty contest. A beauty contest? Is this the way you go get married? You know, you get a shotgun that does royal shaduchim. You know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have a beauty contest. What, is he crazy? So that, I mean, think about that. You know, when was the last time you heard a king at a beauty contest? You know, and he's going to pick out Miss America or whatever he's going to pick out. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, and then the, 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 the fifth uh, coincidence is what? It's Esther 1. Do you know how many women were vying to be the next queen of the entire Persian Empire? What are the odds? And I want to tell you something. Lest you think that Esther was ravishing. No. Because I'll say she was, had a green complexion and she was an old woman. She wasn't a young woman. She had an old complexion. So the question is, excuse me, what was a, what was a Havamina, what was a thought that she could win even? I mean, she's vying against the beauties of Persia. You see? What are the odds that she's going to win? Forget about it. And she won. Right? So that's what? The fifth or the sixth? I'm losing count. Right? 
Oh, then we come to what? The next thing is Homan rises. Now Homan was the last of the guys, he was the seventh advisor. But for a person to rise to the Grand Vizier is unbelievable muzzle. Most people never rise. You have any idea what kind of political acumen, what luck you have to do to become the Grand Vizier of Persia, 127, uh, what do you call it, uh, principalities and so on? So that itself, and the fact that he rose, would mean that he could be killed. Because then Akashverish could kill him. You see, if he's a regular guy, maybe he wouldn't have to have the influence, but he can never do what he wants to do. And then, what happens? This is really, this is what's called pure luck. There's two guys, Bixen and Viserish, right? And they're plotting to kill the king, right? Right? They were talking in a language that nobody knows. And they were talking somewhere in the palace. What luck, as they say, Mordechai happened to be at the exact spot where they were. They didn't see him. And they're discussing the assassination of Avakashverish. You only have to know what luck that is, you see? And it's in a language that nobody knows, really. And then he happened to know the language because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's a tremendous stroke of luck. And because of that, because he saved the lives of the king, they wrote it down in the book, didn't they? Because when you save the life of a king, they write it back, they write it down in the Chronicles of Persia, right? He saved the guy's life, the king's life, right? Wow. But let me ask you something. If you save the life of somebody, what do you think the guy you saved is going to do? He's going to give you a reward, right? He's going to give you a reward. He'll give you a reward if you walk this dog. But Mordechai saved his life. And they wrote it down and they never rewarded Mordechai. Never. Because if they rewarded him, they would not have done what comes later. You see? Because he would have had the reward. How can a king not reward a guy? It's unbelievable. They wrote it down and they forgot to reward Mordechai? What are they, stupid? It, it, this doesn't happen. You know, what kings do, if you save the life of a king, he'll give you what? He'll give you royalty, a dukedom. He'll give you a lord and a manor and all that stuff. They forgot to give the guy a reward? This does not happen. Then what happens? Okay. Then uh, uh, Esther decides she's going to make a banquet, Suda, and she's going to invite Haman and the king and so on. It's going to be, a th as they say, a threesome. Fine. Right? Okay. So what happens? The night before the threesome, as they say, right? The king can't sleep. Wow. Okay. So he can't sleep. People are having insomnia. Right? So what does the king do? He gets up and he says, listen, I got to go to sleep. You want to bring me something? What do they bring him? The Chronicles of Persia. Now I can think of a lot of better things to do. You know, if I want to while away the time to go to sleep. So they bring him the Chronicles of Persia. Excuse me, is this what you read when you can't sleep? Right? And what do they do? You know how many volumes the Chronicles of Persia has? Right? You're talking about the empire, right? 127, you have any idea how many volumes that has? It's got to have at least, what, 50 different books about all the Chronicles of Persia? So they pulled out the exact right one and they open up the page exactly where it says Mordechai saved the life of the king. What are the odds? There are no odds for this. To pull out the right volume, to the exact page where Mordechai was never rewarded, he saved the life and never rewarded. So the people look at it and, and, and Akashverosh, you know, he says to her, what does it say here? 
So he says, it says that Mordechai saved your life. So Achashverosh says to him, what did we do to this guy? You know, what, what, what did we give this guy? Nothing. Which is unheard of. You see, I mean, look at one coincidence after the other, right? And then the king is thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, I got to reward this guy. I mean, it, it's the height of uh, ingratitude not to do this, right? So who's he going to ask? So guess what? In comes Haman. Vayove Haman, right? The question is, what do you mean Vayove Haman? This is in the middle of the night where the king's trying to sleep, right? What Haman doing visiting the king in the middle of the night? Doesn't make sense. And then, of course, the king says to Haman, right? What should I do? What, how would I reward a guy you know, in, in order to honor a guy? So what does Haman do? And this is unbelievable advice. Here's the rule. Every king thinks that everybody wants to kill him. That's the rule. In those days, right, they're always careful. Why do you think emperors of Rome killed their brothers and their parents? Because they didn't want anybody to depose the king, the emperor. They're all paranoid, right? So guess what? Here's Haman, who's the grand vizier, Achashverosh, right? So Haman should do everything possible not to arouse the suspicion of Achashverosh that he wants to take over his job, right? You think that would make sense? Instead, he gives him advice. What's the advice? Take the guy, put him on your royal horse, your crown, and your royal garments, right? Because Haman said he's probably wanted to do it to me, right? He probably wants to, who else is he going to honor, right? But wait a minute, if you think it's you, he, the king is going to say, wait a minute, this guy obviously wants to take away my crown. He wants to kill me. That's the last advice to give a king, you see? Well, you clearly want to indicate that you want to, that you, that possibly you want to take over his throne. Yet this is what Haman offers, which is incredible. Now, Haman is not stupid. You can't become a grand vizier of Persia with this kind of a, uh, advice. But of course he had no free will. The Bansham took it away. So he offered him the worst possible advice of a guy where kings are always worried somebody wants to kill him and take over. And of course, who is the, always the guy you're worried about? The Grand Vizier, he's second to the king. These guys always have to be watched, you see. So that in itself is, un is absolutely incredible. And then, of course, what happens next, right? <clears throat> uh, so Haman, right, goes home, all broken. And his wife, who was a very intelligent woman, said, it's too bad. Once you begin to fall with this guy, it's going to be over for you. Kivan Shachi Loiso and Limpoel, once you begin to fall, he's Jewish. It's finished. But she gave him advice. Build a gallows 50 amas high. That's like a hundred, that's like a, a hundred foot gallow. It's as tall as a 10 story building. Imagine again, let her, and hang common. That was very important, why? Because it was there, it was already built. So if Achashverosh wanted Haman to die, he didn't even have to think. As Chavroina said, hey, there's already a gallows waiting for Mordechai. So immediately he said, hang him, because it was already built was very important not to allow the king to have any thoughts about Kharata, of having regret. Everything is so incredibly balanced and thought out, you see. And then of course Esther calls and of course Haman, she says he wants to kill me and my own people. And what happens to Haman, he, he's, in so, he's threatened because he realizes, his, the, the, as they say, the, jing, the gigs up and so on, you know. So he falls on her bed. 
And right at that moment, the perfect timing, Ahasuerus comes in and says, what are you doing on my wife's bed? I mean, you want to take her now in my presence? You see? And all of a sudden this guy, which is incredible, what timing! It's the worst possible time that the king is thinking this, right? And of course, Harvoyna comes and says, by the way, there's a gallows a hundred feet high, you know? And because it was already built, you know, he didn't even have time to settle down in his anger against someone because he was going to kill his grand vizier. You don't do that to a grand vizier. You need the guy. He said, hang him. And then, of course, after that, you had Mordechai becoming great and Esther and so on. Does this make sense? Do you see this kind of a story? It's all coincidences. Not only are there coincidences, is coincidences that really could never have happened. Maybe one or two, but not one after the other. So what did the Jews realize? They said, this is the act of God. That God no longer acts openly through prophecy and so on and divine miracles. He's now going to act the way he always does, which is the miracle of coincidences. And therefore, they, in order to teach the Jews that, what they did is they named the name of that day Purim, Lots, which is chance. So if this could be chance, obviously that nothing else really could be chance. Besides that, Adelayada, why is it that you have to get drunk and you don't know the difference between Blessed Mordechai and Orohaman? And the answer is a very important lesson. To us, if I asked you, who's the hero of the story? And the answer is Mordechai and Esther, right? Who's the villain? Haman, you see? But that's a tremendous mistake. Why? To us, there is a hero and a villain. To God, there is no such thing as a hero and a villain because they both move the, must do the will of God. The, the, the job of Haman is to put such a threat on the Jewish people that they will realize the bankruptcy of the laws of civilization. That's his job. He doesn't know that. He thinks he really wants to kill the, the Jews. But no, his job by God was to rectify the original defect. You see? So really, he's a messenger of God. He's a shliach. But since he doesn't know that and he's not doing it for that reason, he gets no reward. You see? And Mordechai's job, of course, is to inspire the whole Jewish people, of course, to do tshuva. So therefore, both of them are messengers. Except one who does the will of God openly and willingly, he gets rewarded. The other one also must conform to the will of God, you see, but they don't get any reward. So to God, there's no difference. And therefore, that's what you need to understand, that God has such absolute and total mastery, there is no such thing as a villain, absolutely. Of course, Haman wanted to kill them, but that's, his, that's what his messenger service is. That's what he has to do, threaten the Jews, so that they will realize the difference between civilization, you see, and, and the Torah. So to God, they both do the will of God. They cannot not do the will of God, you see. And as a result of that, there is no difference really. And when you get drunk, and so the Chazal say you need to get drunk, where you recognize there is no such thing as a villain or a heroine. In terms of the reward they get, fine. But in essence, neither can deviate from the will of God. Each person has a shlichus, has an agency, you see. And therefore, Chazal wants you to recognize that. And the way you recognize that, of course, is by getting drunk. Interesting idea. But in any case, now why do we go around in costumes? 
Same idea, because the costume indicates God is not in the Megillah at all. The where is he? He's behind the coincidence. That's why we wear a mask. You see, to show, you see, you see a mask, you see what I look like, what I appear, but don't be deceived by the appearance. There's somebody behind the costume, you see, and the same idea. The costume of the Megillah is coincidence, but behind that is God. So we commemorate that concept, which is very important, you see, is that behind the costume is what? Is God, because he rules by what's called coincidence. Isn't that amazing? One idea answers the whole story. It answers every halacha, every minute. You see? Because you now understand what the essence is. The essence is not rescue. That anyway would have happened. The essence is the Jews must learn their lesson. They need to understand many ideas. One is that civilization is bankrupt. They can do whatever they want. They also must realize that God will now interact with the Jews in terms of coincidence. But it's the same miracles, no difference. Except it doesn't look like a miracle. It's called, it looks like, wow, what luck, right? That's what it looks like. But there is no such thing, you see. And you realize also that no matter how many coincidences it takes, God will save the Jews. Because he will not allow the Jews to be in many ways destroyed. But you know what's interesting? You realize, who realized this before? Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu comes with his wife, Sarah, right? They come to Avimelech. Yes? All of a sudden, Avram Avinu turns to his wife and says, you know, you're good looking. Guess what? The king, you know, the, and these guys were always looking out for good looking women to send to Avimelech, right? She says, listen, if you say that you're my wife, they're going to kill me. Because that's what they're looking for, you see? Instead, you say, my, my sister. So Sora said, uh, he's my brother. And as a result of that, Avimelech, you know, they took, obviously, they, they grabbed her, kidnapped her, really, and they gave it Avimelech. You see, of course, God stopped the whole business, you know, by a, a ness. So Avimelech uh, realized, you see, he realized uh, that uh, she's the wife of Avram, and he comes running back to Avram Avinu, and he says the following. So what'd you do this for? You know, we don't do this kind of thing in my place where we kidnap people's wives, we kill their husbands. But we don't do that here. He, so he confronts Avram Avinu with an accusation. And what does Avram Avinu say? One of the most profoundest things you can ever hear in terms of <coughs> politics. Avram Avinu said, you're right. You have laws, right? You don't do this kind of stuff here. You steal, you steal people's wives and all that. You're right. But... I came to your place, Philistines, Avimelech and so on, and I saw there is no fear of God in this place. That's the case? You guys can do anything you want. Legal schmiegel, as they say. It doesn't make a difference, because that's what your laws are. They can be broken anytime you think you can get away with it. Now what he said is very important, and I'm going to generalize, you know, you should know one thing. Here's the problem. And Avram Avinu gives not only the problem, but the solution. Every politician that runs for office, I don't care who they are, I don't care what their office is, right, will always and ultimately be corrupted. They will. They'll never... You, there is no such thing as an honest politician. Now, it sounds crazy, but I'll, I'll tell you why. It may take longer. Some guys fold within a month. 
you see, bribery. Because, and some guys take a longer time. But in the end, they all do something to service their needs. Why? Because, what's the problem? Because a politician has needs. You know, he has needs. What's the greatest need of a politician? Get elected. To get elected again. Re they want re-elected. They once asked, I think it was Lyndon Johnson, one of the president in the 60s, whatever, you know. They asked him, you won the election, fine, you know. When you sat down in the Oval Office, what was the first thought you had? Right? How do I keep, in the, how do I remain in this chair? That's all he thought about. Everything else was irrelevant. Well, that's called bribery. They are bribed, for, they are bribed from their need to remain in this power position. Because the President of the United States is the most powerful man on earth. You see, that's called bribery. Bribery simply is you're offering me something that I need. Guess what? I'm going to now change the law to benefit you in order to get the bribe. You see, every politician is subject to bribes because they all want to remain in office. And therefore, what do they have to do? It's called a public trust. You know, they don't represent themselves. They represent the uh, constituents. That's a big joke. In any case, right? So what happens? So they have a tremendous need. The need is, wait a minute, it's a contradiction. One need is, I got to remain in office, right? So therefore, I got to take bribes. I got to give people other things that they need so they'll vote for my project and so on, you know? It doesn't, if you don't smear them, they're not going to smear you, you see? But the other need is public trust. Hey, wait a minute. I, I, I was voted in because the, the public wants me to do what they need. It's a contradiction in terms, right? Self-interest versus public interest. Nobody can last on that. Everybody falls. Now, some guys fall immediately. Some guys fall 50%. Some guys fall 80%. And some guys fall 10%. But you'll always fall in some way. What's the remedy? The only remedy is accountability. If you know, you got to face God, right? Where God says, excuse me. You were voted in to do good to the people. Is this what you do? You know, that's the only thing is, what is that called? Yerushimayim. That's what Avraham Avinu said. Brilliant. He said, There is no fear of God in this place. If there's no fear of God, guess what? Right? You're going to do your interest. And it happens to be the interest of Avimelech is to take Sarah. Right? Either there's a law that says you're not allowed to do that. Okay. That law is for somebody else. Because the law is legal. It's not just. It's not based on Yashras. You see? And that's what Avraham Avinu said. So it's a very important insight into what moves politicians. And they don't realize the greatest attribute, characteristic, that a politician has to have is fear of God. Without that, he's finished. I don't care who it is. It may take time, that's true, you know. And the question is, how much will he violate the public trust? It's all, it's not a matter of if, you know, it's when and how much. You see, how many politicians are God-fearing, really? You see, and this is what they understood. This is Avramavino. He understood that laws are legal. They have nothing to do, really, with justice. They look like, but how many times they don't? And not only that, but a politician... If he wants to distort and violate the laws, he can do it. Sure, he's going to of course try to make sure that nobody else knows, obviously. But laws are made to be broken all the time. You see, politicians are always corrupt. This is the problem. You see, so the only person really who deserves to be a politician, right, is a tzaddik.
Sounds weird, doesn't it? A tzaddik? You know? You mean I gotta pull a, only a guy from the base medrash can run for a political office? The answer is yes! Because at least you know, hopefully, at least you know that he's not gonna violate the public trust. Why? Because he knows he's gonna stand in front of God, right? And there is nothing you can do once you're in front of God. Tzavramavino. And that's what the Jews learned in Purim. You can't do that. Everybody's subject to bribes. This is the law of civilization. Only the Torah says, Don't take bribery. Because it will blind the eyes of what? The, the knowledgeable, the wise men. They're wise and they know, but they can't fight the need to take the bribe. And then there's a And even people who are tzaddikim, who have God-fearing, they also will fall. Why? Because it's very difficult to deny a benefit, you see, and to rule in his favor. And that's with being a tzaddik, and so on, you know. In any case, this is therefore what the Jews realized is this, that what the idea of the laws of civilization really are, you cannot trust them. I mean, there are so many examples, unfortunately, even in America, what they did to Pollard is beyond belief. Pollard is a classic, how they distorted the law, right? How they kept that man in prison for 30 years based on something that should never, even if they, uh, that should never have gone for more than four years, because that's the average sentence if you spy for an ally. So because that Russia Marusha Weinberger hated the man or whatever, if we kept a man 30 years in prison, who knows the Gilgul that this man has to go through, the suffering that he has to go through for every second that Pollard was in prison. We don't even know the Einish of this man. And believe me, it's staggering. And he's got to do it not just for 30 years. We, we cannot even, and the thing is that the punishment of a guy like him is so bad that only a Neshama that cannot die can be it can suffer that. Anybody else would drop dead in one minute from that pain. But the soul cannot die because it's immortal in the sense that death is the separation of the soul from the body. That's the riches. And it's not only once. Look, Trump just pardoned a whole bunch of guys because he said their sentence was unjust. Excuse me. What are they doing in prison altogether in, in an unjust way? Then why did it happen? That should bother him. You know, what kind of a system of justice is if guys are unjustly put in prison? And injustice is not only the fact that if you're convicted and you're not really guilty, but why should you get 30 years when all you're supposed to get is four? You see, you have no concept of the injustice and everybody who does this will pay dearly when God finally calls the whole act of the world over. You know, in any case, you see, and that's what the people realized. The incredible injustice of dinam, of judgment, whether it be America or Israel, or all the, and the other countries that forget about them. In South America, I mean, forget it. You're lucky to come out alive, you know, if you do an offense that really should require, let's say, a couple of months that put you away for 40 years. We can't believe the injustice of civilization. And that's what the Jews realized. This is civilization. I don't want any part of it. So they all accepted the Torah with absolute love. It's a very important concept. This is the essence of Purim. That's what it's really all about. It's a very important lesson. And that's why Purim is so great. 
And why is it Yom Kippurim? Why is Purim greater than Yom Kippur? Because Yom Kippur you repent out of fear, right? God's going to say, okay, it's over with, right? I'm the king, and now everybody's judged. So when you do tshuva, it's always out of fear. Purim was tshuva, repentance out of love. It was out of love, which means they had an insight. It was stunning, the insight, and they, they re-accepted the Torah with absolute love, and therefore they rectified the entire thing. Now, the rectification was so great that the Mashiach should have come. Because you had all the Jews that did tshuva. It wasn't a couple, because all the Jews were under Achashverosh. You see, and they did tshuva, all the Jews, and therefore that, that tshuva movement, right, was so great that the Mashiach should have come at that time. Why didn't it? Because the problem was, it was great, however, it would have really happened had the Jews all come back with Ezra to Eretz Israel, which they didn't do. You see, so that destroyed, in fact, Ezra was the Mashiach. He should have been the Mashiach. That's why it says Ezra HaSofer was so great that he was proper, it was appropriate for the Torah to be given through him, not Moshe. I mean, besides Moshe, that if it wasn't for Moshe, he would have been the guy that would give the Jewish people the Torah. Ezra HaSofer, yes, that's how great he was. You see, why didn't that happen? Because when he finally left Babylon, he left with 70,000 Jews instead of the millions of Jews that should have come. And they didn't go back. So therefore, that destroyed the opportunity for Ezra to be the Mashiach. Interesting. But that's how great the tshuva was. A very important idea. So this is really the essence of Purim. I would like to close with, with, a, with just a very interesting idea. You know, mm. Mm. Everything is alluded to in the Torah. Everything. It's fascinating to find uh, things that are alluded to in the Torah that are impossible to happen. One of the things which the Megillah offers is one of the greatest that the Torah is divine. And I want to share it with you because it's worth it. You know, it's that impressive. Okay. <clears throat> uh, there was a Rosh Hashiva, Rav Doiv Be'er, of Weissmendel. He's the Knight of Shiva, a very great man, but he was a tremendous Eloi, a genius. I think the man who seven languages or whatever, but he was very great in mathematics. Uh, and this was before the computers. <clears throat> so what happened one is somebody once went over to him uh, and said to him, you know, where is, uh, where is Esther in the Megillah? You know, where is Esther in the Megillah? Interesting. What was that? Torah or the Megillah? The Megillah. What? In the Megillah. Forget about the Torah. The Megillah, right? So he said, I know where. And listen to this. If you look in the first place in the Torah, the Megillah has approximately, I don't know, I don't recall the exact number, but it's approximately 12,300 letters. That's how many letters there are in the Megillah. 12,300. Let's assume so. Doesn't make a difference because it's the exact whatever the exact number is. So he said, if you look for the word, the first letter Aleph, the first time it appears in the Torah, embracious, Beis, Reish, Aleph, embracious. The third letter in the Torah is an Aleph. If you count from that Aleph, twelve thousand three hundred, the exact amount of letters in the Megillah, that it will land on the letter of Samach. If you count another twelve thousand three hundred. 
Tov and another Resh. It's astounding. That means using the exact amount of letters in the Megillah, it spells out, it's called a skip code, Esther. Right? What's the mathematical probability? That means... The amount of letters are in the actual Megillah, but you're putting it into the Torah. Yes. Because Tanakh is, right? It's all divine. Even the Nach is Rocha uh, and so on, right? So think about what that means. That means whoever wrote the Torah, right, had to know that there would be an Esther, right? That she would write a Megillah, right? And that the Megillah would have 12,300 letters. And then he could place Aleph Samach Tof Reish exactly. What are the odds that it could come about by chance? There are no odds. Because remember, these letters have to appear in the narrative itself. There are no odds, right? It's incredible. Think about that, right? And, uh, and that, so whoever wrote the Torah would have to know that 800 years before the whole event of the Megillah, that there would be an Esther, he or she would write a Megillah of that amount of letters, right? And her name would be Esther, and so on. It's inconceivable, right? Uh, so then he asked Rav Weissmendel, he said, where's Mordechai alluded in the Torah? Mordechai, remember him? Is the other part, right? So Rav Weissmendel said, I don't know. Come back next year and maybe I'll figure it out. I mean, and this is without a computer, right? So the guy came back the, the next year. And he says, well, Mordechai, where is it? So he says, okay. The Gemara says that Mordechai is alluded to in a posse called Mordor. It's about uh, fragrances and so on, right? If you look at that posse where the, the Gemara says he's alluded to, and you find the first letter of the, of the Pasuk, a Mem. Fine. Count from the Mem. 12,300, same code. It spells out Resh. Another 12,3, Dalid. Another 12,3, Chof. And another one, Yud. Five letters exactly separated. That's Bel Mordechai. The exact letters, the, the exact amount of letters in the Megillah that is mathematically inconceivable. Therefore, somebody who wrote the Torah had to have known that there would be a, an event that would be written down, that's 12,300 letters, and he had to know that there would be a Mordechai and an Esser, right? 800 years before the event ever occurred. What's the mathematical probability? So anyway, so this guy who had approached Rav um, Weissmendel, you know, he told this over at a Shabbos meal, and there was a woman there, you see, who was a, 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 a balas tshuva. So he told it over, and this woman said, I can't believe that's true. It's impossible. The mathematical probability of two people being 800 years in the future, exactly alluded to with a skip code that exactly is the amount of letters in Megillah, is mathematically, by chance, impossible. Or, or, you know, or, or rather, it, no, no, she said, by a divine uh, a, a person, is impossible. It has to be chance. That's what she said. And I want to tell you something. She told the guy, I'm a mathematics major. I'm going to see if it's true. She told the guy, it's got to be chance. Forget about divine proof. It, it's, it's not, you know. Anyway, so she, uh, the next morning, he comes, uh, she comes out, you know, and he sees that she's crying, you know. So she said she stood up all night doing the mathematical equations of the probability, right? And she said the number is astronomical. There is no possibility. 
Therefore, it proof that only a divine being who knew the future could have written this. You see, that's what she said. And then he, he she left. You know, she went away, and he didn't see her in a. In a in he, didn't, he, never, he didn't see her again. So a couple of years later, he's at a wedding, right? And he, a person comes over to him, a woman with a shaitl and all that. So she says to him, do you remember me? She said, no. So she said, do you remember the student that calculated you know, the mathematical probabilities and so on and realized that this is po proof positive that there has to be a divine being that knew all of this, you know? I'm that woman. And I was so moved that I went and married a coil guy. And I'm a former woman married to a color guy, and he learns Torah all day. You see, it's interesting that you need a mathematician to agree with you, you know. Uh, but it is inconceivable. I, I found that proof so overwhelming that by chance it's impossible for this to happen because we're talking about the Torah written 800 years before. It's amazing when you think about that. Anyway, I wanted to share that with you. And it's all from the Megillah and so on. Okay, so now when you're about to hear the Megillah, what are you going to think about? That the Torah is the only document that makes sense. It's not only the laws that will get you to Olim Habo. It will it's the only way to live in Olim Hazer. To live in this world. Forget about anything else. And when you look at the laws of the societies, the civilizations, you realize how many times do they violate. They are so, so many bribes. And that should endear you and that's what the Chazal want then you should realize that you have to unify with your brothers and sisters, the Jewish people. Because let me tell you something, there is nobody else. The Jews have to stick together because everybody in many ways hates us in that sense, you know. And they just look for different ways to display terrible anti-Semitism. And by the way, as an aside, and I'll end with this, I believe part of the coronavirus is because of the anti-Semitism that is spread around the world. Uh, you have to understand something. There is a time that God will allow Goyim to, dis to kill Jews. He will allow that. You find it by, by the Megillah, he almost allowed Haman. But of course we know what the purpose was, is the concept of Tikkun. So of course, that was the whole purpose to Jews to realize. But in the Holocaust, he allowed the Goyim to do that. And I want to tell you something, whether you realize it or not, the Holocaust has many different multi-reasons, you know, and I, I can list you four, although what God does is always multi-deterministic and so on, you know. But there are reasons for the Holocaust, why God allowed Hitler and all his ministers to get away to kill six million Jews. And there are ideas to that. But what is interesting, and if you're familiar with the code, okay, that in the Megillah it says that they hung the ten sons of Haman. That's what it says in the Megillah. It's a code, you know. I, that's the, the, the ten sons were hung in, in the Megillah it says that, right? But then later on when Esther and Mordechai are talking to Ahasuerus They again ask him to do it again Hang the sons So all the Mephoshim say, what does this mean? They already were hanging You know, why are they asking again That the ten sons of Haman should be hung? So nobody really has an answer. There are attempts, it doesn't mean really hang them the second time, I mean just hang them on the gallows where people can see them. But there's an incredible code that if you look at the ten sons of Haman, right? They're written large, but three letters are written small in the different one in the ten sons, right? A tough, a shin, and a vav. Those are written small. 
And nobody knows why. You see? But the striking idea to that is the following. <clears throat> Julius Streicher, in 1946, on Hoshana Rabbah, Nuremberg trials, they hung ten ministers of Hitler. Ten. Exactly ten, right? One of the ministers that were hung was a guy called Julius Streicher. While he was about to be hung, right, he looked around at all the other ten, right, the other nine, right, and he said something which is very strange. He, he screamed out, Purim Fest, which in German means the festival of Purim. That was, now, obviously what he saw was bizarre. He saw that all ten, right, were be hanged, and that's exactly what happened to the sons of Haman. Ten sons of Haman were also hung, so to him he realized, what a repeat. All ten ministers are being hung, right, just like the ten ministers of, uh, of uh, the ten sons of Haman. That's what he said. So, Why do you say It's not even the same time he... No, it wasn't. It was Hoshana Rabbah. But obviously he realized ten, ten of them were being hanged, and uh, that's what occurred to him, right? So what does that mean? So they realized that the small letters, Tov Shin Vav, okay, is, uh, is uh, when you think about it, and, oh, and then there's one Vav that's bigger. Tov Shin uh, Vav, small, there's one Vav that's large. In any case, what that means is that that's the year. Vav is the sixth millennium, so in the year 5000, okay, 704, you see, the ten sons of Haman will be rehung, and that was 1946, which is when you think about it, it's, it's amazing. Those letters, three small, one big, correspond to the English year of 1946. And in 1946, Anushan Rabbah is exactly when they hung those ten people. Which tells us who Hitler was. And he's Amalek. Hitler is a Gilgal of Haman. His ten, his ten ministers are a Gilgal of all his ten sons. And they come back. And what Esther Mordechai was saying prophetically is that when they come back in the Gilgal, do the job again. Hang them. Ah, you see? Now what's interesting is that there was an 11th that died. His daughter. Remember when the, uh, Haman was leading Mordechai? So his daughter, they were, they were leading them past the balcony where they lived. So the daughter of Haman thought that the one leading is Mordechai. So she took all the, what's called the garbage and so on in the house and she threw it over the balcony and it landed on her father because she didn't know that her father was leading Mordechai. She thought it was vice versa when Mordechai was leading, you know. And Haman looked up and she realized what, what, she, what she just did to her father, you know. She was so incredibly distraught that she threw herself over the balcony and killed herself, what she had just done to her father. So that's the 11th. Who was the 11th? Uh, Goebbels, I think it's Goebbels. Goebbels committed suicide. He took a cyanide pill. Gehring. I don't know if it's Gehring or Goebbels. Gehring. Was it Gehring? Okay, Gehring was the Luftwaffe. Goebbels was the... Uh, um, different, you know, but uh, Goring was the uh, Luftwaffe, you know. What was interesting is that, um, that Goring was a cross-dresser. And he committed suicide. What? And he committed suicide, yeah. He was the 11th. He never was hung because he committed suicide and he was a cross-dresser. Interesting, you know. Came back as a guy instead of a woman. But anyway, but that shows you that uh, Purim's story always goes on. It never ends. 
they always they're always looking to kill Jews. And I believe that the Rosham said he gave whatever permission he gave for the Holocaust to happen. There are different ideas behind that and so on. But I believe now that anti-Semitism is spreading across the world, that Rosham says enough is enough. You know, you want to isolate the Jews, right? I'm to make sure that you are isolated, quarantine. You wanna, you wanna look at the Jews like there's some kind of a plague. I'm gonna send a plague on you. It's worldwide. It's getting worldwide. You know, and you wanna throw the Jews out of your country, out of the economy of the country. Guess what? I will destroy your economies. The, the media connected media is stunning when you think about that. And I believe that part of the reasons for this, besides being a, 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 a purification of the world before Mashiach comes, I believe that it's being widespread because the anti-Semitism is widespread. <coughs> God is saying, no more. I will not allow you to have anti-Semitism against the Jews. What happened in the Holocaust is one thing, but now it's not going to happen, and therefore I'm going to create a plague, and that's what it is, that's going to knock out a great deal of the world. Anyway, that's my personal belief. And since I connected to the Holocaust, Purim, and that that's always what goes on. There's always anti-Semitism. Okay, thank you. Any questions? Yeah, any questions? Yeah. You're saying that this about coronavirus. Oh, that. No, but it's the same that it's also for, like, against the Hashanah, it's also in Israel. It's what? It's also in Israel. They've already had Yes, it's true. But it, it, it's very few cases, maybe. What is it, you know? But uh, I believe the... the it, I want to tell you something, which is a very important rule. You have to realize one thing. Once judgment happens, right, then it, it will primarily be directed at a, a person. And if he's found guilty, then he's punished. The problem is that, like the Gemara, the Gemara Bava Kama, that once you give permission to the Mashchis, to the Sutton, or the Malachamavas to carry out the decree, right, then everybody's judged who's connected to that place. And the problem is that as long as you're not judged, even if you're guilty of death, nothing will happen. You want to avoid being brought to court. That's the problem. The problem is when there's a plague in the world, right then the whole world is judged and you are also judged because of that situation that the world is judged and the problem is when they look at your portfolio of sins if you have sins which deserve sickness and death it happens to you even though the reason initially was not because of you that's why you find when there's a tremendous catastrophe there are many people that really are tremendously punished even though they don't deserve it or they do deserve it but they should never have been punished because they should never have been judged it was only because they were caught up in the judgment against a whole society that they were also judged found guilty and punished and therefore this is what's happening now once the mashchis which is the sutton the malchamovas has permission to go around now and do this, then everybody is judged, and that's the problem. You see, even Jews. But it, and again, if it's in order to help the Jewish people, right, and it's in order to like fight out Overall. But it's, it's going to have like very negative effects on, on the economy. We don't, we don't know that. We don't know that. Right now, Israel is holding its own. You know, we don't know that.
Esther from Beijing asks. <coughs> from where? Beijing. Beijing? I'm translating for her. She wants to know if there's any connection <coughs> here with the uh, threat looming over the tomb of Mordechai Nestor in Iran. Yeah, it's, of course. <coughs> it's because, you know, look, I, I don't want to get the whole thing, but I, I, like, like I said, you know, the Sultan is dying. He's, there are so many places in the world that are intensifying their evil. At the same time, that there are so many places in the world where evil is being punished. Look at Iran. The two greatest nations I, in terms of the instability of the world is Iran, obviously, and China. China is filled with gazelle thievery. They're tremendous thieves. They steal trade secrets. It's unbelievable what these guys do, you know? Uh, and it's all cyber theft and so on, you know? And there comes a time when God said, enough is enough. And since we are before Messianic era, I got to clean up the place. But it's not just Iran, it's also Italy. Italy yes, I believe Italy is another reason. I believe that it's uh, some type of a punishment for, I hate to say it, but for Christianity. Yes, yeah, and so on. It's not Italy per se, it's Catholicism. Because uh, what Rome has done to Jews, forget about that. You know, we don't know when God pays back. God can wait a millennium before he pays back anybody. You know, but I, I believe that a lot of it is focused on, uh, on in some way. Not to, no. They've been killing Jews for 2,000 years. It's unbelievable. You know how many Jews died because of Christianity? You would, you would not believe the number uh, of how many Jews died, you know? Uh, listen, I'll tell you something interesting. Remember that one of the greatest plagues of mankind is the bubonic plague, right? 1348, whatever. Why? One, uh, the, the bubonic plague, uh, the, uh, which was carried by a bacteria, and by the way, also came from China through the Silk Route. That's how it came to Europe and so on. It destroyed, I think, uh, at least half of Europe. Why? Crusades, right? What? I mentioned the Crusades, because the Crusades killed so many Jews and Jewish communities on their way, so to speak, to rescue the Holy Land, right, from the Arabs and so on. Meanwhile, who knows how many thousands, of, we can't believe, you know, imagine you're living in a town, and all of a sudden you see 5,000 guys coming with axes and all that, and they're all screaming, get the Jews! You see, what is this? So God, so, you know, so it takes time, but after all these crusades, God said, okay, it's payback time. And he wiped out, uh, he wiped out most of Europe. It's astounding. In fact, that profoundly changed the world. He did the same thing with the Spanish flu in 1938, right? Do you know how many thousands of Jewish communities were destroyed in World War I? I mean, that's what he did, just wiped them out. I think 90 million people or something like that died in the Spanish flu. Enormous amount, millions of people and so on, you know. You know, God waits, and we don't know why. He, he, has, he has what's called his cheshben. He has his reckoning. But when, the, when justice comes, get out of the way. Because God will go after nations, not just two people. He will, and he can do that. He calls up his soldiers. You know what his soldiers are? The biggest, I think the biggest, 40 nanometers. That's his soldier. Right? What's a virus? It's nothing. No. He just calls up his soldiers and says, okay, guys, go to it. And, and nobody, nobody wants what to do. He can wipe out complete nations. I mean, who can imagine China, 1.4 billion people, one of the greatest, the second greatest economy in the world, right, is now be bending down on its knees. It's being destroyed. 
If God doesn't have Rachmanus in China, he can wipe them out, wipe them out. All they need to do is keep their factories closed for the next four or five months and they'll never recover. And what's really interesting is that many companies are now leaving China because we don't need this again. We already had SARS. We need this again. So they're moving their factories, which means that those businesses are lost in China. They won't come back. China is being wiped out. The question is the Rachmanus, the mercy. Will God do this to China? Or what will happen, you know? And, um, you know, the people, people don't realize, don't start up with God. Can't do that, you see? Because he holds the cards, as they say, you know. <clears throat> but this isn't an accident. A world pandemic, which it may become, isn't an accident. It's because there's a judgment time. Everybody's being judged, the whole planet. Because that's what happens. And everybody's dossier or fire cabinet is being looked at. And if people have things which means that they, they have to have severe punishment, so on and so forth, they're going to get it. Even though their dossier should not have come up. But the reason why it did is because the world is what's called a makam sakana. It's a dangerous time, and that's what happens. And once you give the sultan, okay, you're free to do what you want, then everybody who's judged and is found guilty is uh, either destroyed or, uh, and so on. That's the way it works, you know. And right now we are witnessing a frightening time. And the reason for that, I, I believe, is because we are entering very close to the Mashiach, which I spoke about two weeks ago, and this is what's called a cleanup time. God is not going to tolerate the enormous amount of corruption, injustice, and cruelty, and immorality that people are doing. And he's saying enough is enough, and, and that's it. We're, we're watching 57 countries have the virus. It's astounding how it spread. It's just like people don't even know, like where is this coming from? You know, and, and so on, you know, and Iran has it big time and so on. Ministers also. Yeah, yeah, I heard he died. Not oh yeah, they're, they're, they're almost finished. Because as it is, nobody's buying their oil. They're collapsing anyway, right? And now I heard Tehran has it all, Um has it, and so, you know, Kum, whatever they call that place, and so on. That, that, that imagine if they have to shut factories in Iran? It's unbelievable. You are witnessing a terrible time of retribution. That's what it is. People don't realize this isn't chance, this is God. And you have to be very careful, you know. Uh, what, what I would say is if you want to protect yourself, there's an interesting segula. Don't speak Lashon Hara. Because Lashon Hara arouses the judgment. You see, and if you don't speak Lashon Hara, then there's no judgment. It's amazing when you think about that. And that's exactly what you want. You don't want anybody looking at your portfolio of sins. So if you don't talk Lashonara, guess what? They can't judge you. Because you didn't speak Lashonara, you didn't condemn somebody, so they cannot condemn you. So that's an unbelievable protection against a plague. Yeah, I would say people are smart, they will be extremely careful not to speak Lashonara. Because then they'll avoid the judgment, and that's the key of why this is happening to people. Because they're judged. So that's a tremendous etza, uh, you know, uh, way of doing it. Well, your chesed is, all, of course, always very powerful. But I'm saying something which is specifically earmarked against the judgment. I want to ask that I saw news that what was that? Recently, Iran want to give the tomb of Esther and Mordechai to the Palestine, and how about their tombs? Because they're Iran I did not understand. 
They're trying to, the Iranians are, are, are looking to transform, instead of to have the, preserve the tombs of Mordechai and Esther, they want to like completely do away with it and turn it into like a Palestinian <coughs> cultural site. Well, yeah, okay, that, I mean, that's always what they, uh, they want to so do. They're, they're, the point is that like they're Mordechai and Esther and Sadiqim, like is there going to be like ramifications? No. Well, there will be ramifications, but uh, I, I don't believe that they will be successful, you know. Mordechai and Esther. Yeah. How is it that the Jews did not go with Ezra back to Israel when they just reached that level of accepting the Torah? Well, you have to remember that Ezra was many, many years after the Megillah event. You see? So that, that's a very important idea. And so, you know, um, what? The Ramban held that most of them did go back. No, there was only 70,000 that went back. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, uh, you know, it's the old story, you know? Uh, if you offered the Eretz Israel, first of all, Eretz Israel was not built up at all, right? There was a lot of enemies in Israel trying to kill the Jews as they were building, you know, the base of Migdash and so on and so forth. So many Jews said, hey, it's, got, got, it's comfortable here, you know, why, why risk it and go out into a, a place that's, uh, you know, unsettled? They just saw that. They just went through that whole point of seeing, you can't be here, we need our own place, we need to follow Hashem's laws. Listen, it, it happened, yeah, okay, it happened many years later with Ezra and so on, and by that time people did not want to leave. They, you know, got comfortable in the Gullahs. That's what happens all the time, right? People are comfortable in Gullahs. Why are people not coming from America? Because uh, they're comfortable in Gullahs, in Gullahs, you know? God has to, whatever. One more esoteric question, if I may, is... Um, the Rav said that uh, it's possible that Hillary Mahshmo was, was Haman, and I had heard that Hillary Clinton's uh, gematria is Hamalakit or Amalkia. Is it possible she was someone in the Purim story? Um, or any thoughts or theories? I don't have any thoughts on that. Oh. <laughs> that, would, that would be something, you know. Uh, yeah. What is your view on what's happening with Trump at this particular moment in time politically, vis-a-vis -vis our perspective as Jews in terms of what's happening as far as the redemption, etc., but together with everything that else that's happening in the world, the condemnation of Trump, everything else that's Well, happening. I had spoken about that two weeks ago, you know, and so on. <clears throat> but I, I once mentioned uh, is that what I see is happening is that all these prosecutions against Trump are only in his first term. I believe in the second term he will be unleashed to do, like I mentioned then, his real mission, which is to give back the land of Israel to the Jews. That that which is yours be yours. That's his tshuva and that's his mission. So I believe that that will happen. You know? I'm not mistaken, tomorrow's elections. Um, yes. Is there, is there any uh, prognosis? Uh, any prognosis? Prediction. I want to tell you something. There's only one issue. It's nothing more than that. It's not Gantz. It's not Tanyo. It's not Lapid. It's none of this stuff. The only issue or the question is, is the time of domination of the era of Rav over or not? That's all it is. Nothing more. God doesn't care about elections. We saw that in Trump. You know, uh, where everybody said he's going to lose, and everybody forgot that the only vote that counts is God's. Everybody else is irrelevant. It means 325 million votes was irrelevant. You see, 
That's the question. So what you really have to ask yourself is, are we that close to the Messianic era with the era of Rav, which are Jews, unfortunately, which I spoke about, that in many ways want to destroy the connection between the Jews and God, the bond, the agreement, and so on. Is that over? Because the era of Rav is the last obstacle to Mashiach. That's how close we are. So, rather than a prediction, but what we do see, if you look at the pattern, is that Netanyahu Wogans cannot put a coalition together. So we do see that both of these are Erev Rav, which I explained a while back and so on, two weeks ago and so on, is that both of them cannot put a government together. So it's almost like God is saying to the Erev Rav, you can have all the elections you want, you're not going to have an elec uh, a government because I will not allow you to have domination over spirituality in Israel. Because I believe that God wants to bring spirituality back to the Jewish people and it'll never happen with, forget about Gantz, Gantz will destroy Judaism. Destroy it. And, it will, and it's one of the worst decrees ever and I do not believe God is going to do that. You know, and Netanyahu, same idea, as long as he is Prime Minister, the Jews will never do tshuva. You know, because he is not supportive of anything religious. I mean, he accommodates the religious because of coalition. But he himself, to go out of his way to want to actively pursue spirituality, doesn't exist. So that's the question. So what we do see is the uh, pattern. Uh, Netanyahu has failed once, failed. That's historical. He has failed twice. That's historical. Once is historical. Twice, right? And not only that, the next historical thing, as I said, is that he's indicted. A sitting prime minister has never been indicted. It's incredible, you know? So, uh, so the, what? The likelihood is, again, don't look, it's not Netanyahu. Look at the zero of the era of Rav. Because if Netanyahu goes, that's one of the greatest indicators that the messianic era is about to begin. That's the incredible thing, because he is the, the that's the last grand obstacle, uh, and and so on. So therefore, if they can't put together a government again, then someday Rivlin will wake up and actually do his job, which is he will appoint somebody else, designate somebody else. He will give them the mandate. Okay, you go and form a government, which he can do, by the way. And the fact that he's not doing that is a terrible indictment to this man, Rivlin, because that's his job. And that's why they made the law, is that if there's no coalition, then he has the authority to designate an individual to put together a coalition. And he's not doing that. Instead, he's making a choizik of the Israeli public by subjecting them to billions and billions of shekel. That's how much they, each election costs a billion dollars. Dollars, not shekel, you see? And what it is, he's leaving the government of Israel without a government. He's leaving Israel without a government, which is terrible. How do you do that? You know, democracy? This isn't democracy. They failed. How many times is a guy, you know, in America we have strike out, three times you're out. So what are we waiting for the third time and he's three times he's out? How many times is that? What are they going to have? They are going to have eighth, ninth, tenth uh, elections? When's this guy going to wake up? He already, he already, you know, and he's not doing his job, which is terrible. It's an indictment against him. Exactly. He should be removed from the, from the, uh, the presidency. What kind of job is this, you know? You give the guy, okay, I understand you forgot, you let him do, you know, he didn't put a coalition in, in April, fine. 
Okay, even then he should have said it's over with. But in uh, September, again? Where, where are you, you know? And then when the guy is indicted as a prime, min as a prime minister, there's three strikes, you're out. And I want to tell you something. <clears throat> it's not just him. It's the Supreme Court. Why? Let me just tell you something. Let's assume Netanyahu is innocent, right? I'm not going to his guilt or innocence for these crimes, whatever they are, right? But he's going to be a part-time prime minister. How can a man defend himself for three crimes? You know how often he's going to have to talk to his lawyers, and then he's going to have to appear in court, because the defendant has to be in court while he's being accused, right? So half the time he's not a prime minister, he's a defendant in the court. Is Israel one a, uh, a part-time prime minister? Does this make sense? And I'm not going into the guilt or innocence of the man. What kind of a job is it? It's not a job. I mean, the fact that, the, that Israel can say that a prime minister who's indicted can still function as a prime minister is, is the height of stupidity. Why? Because it's not a matter if he's guilty or innocent. He can't do his job. And Israel is a country that needs a constant job, a prime minister making decisions. You know what I'm saying? It, the whole thing is ridiculous. So let the Supreme Court, you know, do what they can do and say, forget about it. You can't run Israel on a part-time basis. You see? And no, but nobody seems to care. It's just unbelievable to watch the what the, these people are doing. The breakdown of what you were saying before. It's a breakdown of the era. Exactly, so yeah. The, the next stage is, is going to be the solution, not the present stage. Yeah, it just continues. So that's the key. If Netanyahu, if somebody is chosen, I'm, I'm hoping it's Gideon Saar, because I think he can do it. He's a religious guy, Shem Shabbos and so on. Is that if, um, uh, if, 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 if these people are out and somebody else is in, right, that, that's the greatest indicator of the beginning of the end. Then everybody should go make a kiddish, because the era of Rav is gone. And that means the next person will be the transition to the Mashiach bin Yosef. It's amazing when you think about it, you know? And that's what the, what's called, that's what the issue is. Does the ghoul start now, or in a relatively short amount of time, or are we going to have to go back and be subject to this, this, uh, uh, what do you call it, atheistic, not atheistic, but terrible meanness of what these people are doing. I mentioned that the, the, uh, the, uh, there's 1.5 million kids in public school and the Jewish courses that are being taught, hardly any, you know, are being conducted by the reform movement. You're talking about pluralism, they're teaching pluralism, which means that there are many forms of what, of Judaism. The reform, conservative, that's terrible. I mean, this is the future of Judaism, is the youth, right? And you're going to teach 1.5 million kids about what? about reformed and the value of reformed and conservative and then orthodoxy uh, the article said that they want to introduce a course in, about Shabbos what are the rewards of keeping Shabbos right and they submitted it to the committee and they rejected it it's too much religion what was this article? what a choizek you talk about a mockery of God's Torah but this will come home to roost so that's the issue do you remember the article because people were asking? Yeah, the article uh, is a, an article uh, written by Hamodia. It's Hamodia, it was in uh, the English edition. Uh, that means if you call Hamodia, what's that? The article's on your Facebook page. Oh, I have a Facebook page, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen my Facebook page. You know, it's fa to me, my Facebook page is faceless. 
<laughs> but it's on my uh, it's it's on the okay it's on my Facebook page. You can read the article right on the on the. What's the what? How do you get to my Facebook page? Just go to Rabbi Mendel That's it. That's it. Okay. Rabbi Mendel Kesson Facebook page. Uh, you can read and you read the article from Hamodia, but it's it's heartrending when you think about that. I mean, when Paroi said to Moshe Rabbeinu, "Who do you want to take out?" What was the first thing he said? Noreinu, our youth. Because that's where the entire future of Judaism is. Is the youth, you see. And to take 1.5 million kids, it's staggering. And to expose them to reform, the conservative, and pluralism, anything else goes. You know, it's okay to be Machal Shabbos, desecrate the Sabbath, forget about, uh, you know, the conversions, or marriages, or, or uh, it's unbelievable. You can't believe what uh, what will result to these people that even think this way you know it, it, it's terrible to talk about Jews this way it really is but they're destroying the Jewish people destroying the Jewish people we are in a great sakona and that's why I would tell people when you vote I'll even say who to vote for you must vote for Torah and don't have any other cheshben why? you need to vote Gimel and uh, they're not paying me for this believe me it has nothing to do with them. Why? Because in the end of time, it's like Moshe Rabbeinu said by the sin of the golden calf, Mila Shemilai, who is for the Lord? You want to be in that place. So if you vote for Torah, uh, whether they win or lose is irrelevant. You need to say, I am with Torah, that's what God wants, I'm going to vote for them. The outcome is irrelevant to you, you see, because you want to be with the people that said, I am with God. It's that simple. You have to wrote Gimel. What? I don't think he's running. He is. No. No, no. First of all, no. I, I, Gimel. You have to vote for the Gimel. That's my. That's my opinion. And I'm saying you why? Because it's, it has. It's, it has to do if they win or not. You need to say I voted with the Torah of God. You need to be in that group. You see, that's why. You don't want to be seen as a person that did not vote for Torah. Because then you can be put in a position where you are not with God. You don't want to be in that position. Very simple idea. Any questions? If I go to Gimel last time, do I have to keep doing this? Especially since they don't seem to get their act together. How many times am I going to have to keep going back? It doesn't make a difference. As long as Judaism is threatened, you need to vote with Torah. What? Yeah, but Osmats, I won't make the threshold. Doesn't even make sense. They won't make the threshold. It's a waste of thought. Rabbi. Yes. I understand what you said about China. I understand completely. Uh, Good. China. Yes, but uh, I'm worried about my families. How? What can I do for my families? Because I'm here. I'm happy. I think um, Hashem helped me, but how about my family? I will tell you, take on a mitzvah and say to God, I'm taking on the mitzvah that the merit of the mitzvah should protect my family. That's what you should do. Uh, I uh, do mitzvah here, and I say to God that uh, in the merit... It should protect your family, yeah. Okay. Uh, and it'll work. Oh, thank you. Okay? Thank you. I think Hashem will protect them. Yes. yes. And believe me, it's, no, it's not, it doesn't take much effort for God to protect anybody. 
Because remember one thing, you have to remember something. Everyone that gets sick with the coronavirus, right, has an address of that person. No person becomes sick without a reason. Everybody. Yes, yes. You see? So it's, uh, there's no such thing as a virus. You have to understand this. Ain't it we think that there's what's called a koyach acher, that there is another force. There is no other force but God. So if that's the case, so, you know, if God doesn't will it, it's impossible for any virus to do any damage. He's the one, let me put it in a different way, which is strange. Because there's no other force in the universe other than God, therefore the coronavirus is God in the form of a virus. I'll put it that way. There's no such thing as a virus, really. Of course it exists, it's independent. It looks like it exists independently, but it means that that is the form that God is assuming, not that he is the virus, but that it's up to him. And the, the virus is God acting in a certain way. Yeah. That's all it is. Like Haman. Like Haman. Haman, yeah. Yes, like he just the people that God used to to do something like... Okay. Yeah. Any other... Any other uh, yes? I have another question. I have a really hard time <coughs> understanding this concept of um, the Jewish people not accepting the Oral Torah. I understood that when it says that God compelled them with the mountain, yeah. I always learned that, that they accepted it out of fear because when you experience God, you have no free choice because you're seeing God before you and the, the power of it. And therefore, but they that, that's, out of fear, but not out of love. But the idea that they didn't accept the oracle, like where does that all come from? Like, I, I don't make this up. No, but I'm saying, but at that point, they hadn't yet been explained to them what, all the, what it all entailed, right? That was afterwards. Well, you know, the revelation at Sinai was something we have never seen. We can't believe what that was. Yet, in some way, you know, I have to remember one thing, right? When the Jews stood at Mount Sinai, how many days ago had they left Egypt? 49. You don't change in 49 days. It's a very interesting concept. Remember, you could take the Jews out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Jews. And therefore, they still had a slave mentality. This was their problem. That's why when Moshe, they thought Moshe was dead, right? That's why they said, we need to make another God, another, you know, uh, what do you call, agent that represents God. Because they couldn't be without a master. Their slave mentality. They were not used to exercising independent will. Because that's what a slave is. He never decides on his own. Basically, his masters always tell him what to do. You see? But that's the fact. That's what Tosfos says. You know? Uh, is that they did not accept the oral law. They didn't want it. And that defect, like I said, is what Purim is all about. To undo the damage, spiritually, that they did by that. And they did. They, they, that's why Purim is so great. Because they reaccepted the oral law with total devotion and love. It's great, it's a tremendous holiday. We don't realize that the, there's an illumination that shines on Purim, on the day of Purim. There's an incredible illumination that if you take advantage of it, uh, tremendous things can happen to you. It's a tremendous illumination. Right. So how do you take advantage of it? Uh, I figured you were going to say that. <laughs> One of the best ways to take advantage of Purim, right, is to understand what Purim is about. You see? So, when you're having the Suda, right? You have a meal, it's a mitzvah, right? So, when you're having the Suda, you really have to have tremendous joy. You know, not just, okay, pass the gravy. You know what I'm saying? 
you know, but you have to have a tremendous joy and think about the fact that God really, there's an unbelievable joy, not only that we were saved, fine, but that we recognize how unique is the Torah in its ability to transport you to a future destination. That's why. And that there is no real way. The Torah is absolutely righteous. God says himself. And we have to be tremendously happy that we recognize that and we have to hold the Torah in such a, a tremendous uh, state of endearment, you know. That will allow the illumination, because that's really what it is. Remember, that's the oiro. And if you connect to that oiro, then you will receive the illumination of Purim. And it's a very great illumination. You see? Yes? No, they did it because God put the mountain over them. Okay. And they had no they choice. Did, they out of fear, yeah. You know, out of fear. So they obviously ultimately did accept it, you know. But that's not what God wanted. You know, it's not, remember I told you, it's not that they didn't accept the Torah. They did not accept the will of God. That's the key. And God said, you need to accept my will, which happens to be the Torah, you see? And you need to do it out of love. And that will bring down an unbelievable spiritual illumination. It's the presence of God. It's the opening of the Kabbalistically, it's the opening of the spheres. And that's really what the future world is, you see? And the Jews have to do that. So it was a setup. Purim is a setup. Isn't that interesting? They had to go through Purim. You know, none of this was contrived. None of this is accident. Haman was purposely made into a shliach. God shows him, okay, you're the guy that's going to bring back uh, my guys. And by the way, the Gemara said the descendants of Haman were Tanoim. Would you believe he had Tanoim, people who wrote the Mishnah, as descendants? I think Reb Meir was a descendant of Haman, if I remember correctly, you know. Uh, but there were Tanoim, people who wrote the Mishnah, that descended from Haman. Obviously, you know, from... Uh, even though they killed all the kids, but obviously their grandchildren that he had, because he had a lot of kids, you know? Yeah. Two weeks ago, someone asked you whether or not Gog or Magog is still necessary. Yeah. I don't know, I don't remember if you would answer that. I did. Oh. <coughs> I said that Goig or Magog, right? I, I said that it was the UN. Because the UN fits the perfect description. It is all the nations of the world, and they're all allied against Israel, right? Double standard. Right? And what, what do they say? That Jerusalem doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the Arabs. Wow. That's like a, a description of Goy Gumogoy. That's the UN. So the way we understand Gogumogog originally, the way I do, about this major war and the That war was the Holocaust. Uh, God split it. The Holocaust absorbed the terrible uh, suffering that Goy Gumogoy would have to do. So God split it. He put it into the Holocaust, you see? And that was terrible, and and but the the the, the uh, other the Gogumogog is the conflict, is not a Holocaust. It's a it's just a conflict of anti-Semites mm -hmm. against um, mm -hmm. against that you know, you know, and so on. You know, and but it, and it fits in that America is still protecting Israel. Sure, that's that's Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Trump is the brother of uh, Yaakov. Remember the whole. I got 50 lectures on this stuff, on who Trump is, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, you know. Yeah, he's, he's, in, he's like the knight in shining armor. It's unbelievable what this guy's doing, you know. And the incredible thing is he doesn't even know. 
the man does not know what he is, he knows what he's doing, but he does not know his place in the messianic process. It's an unbelievable thing. You know, that's why I said, you know, I say sometimes, I say, boy, I'd love to meet the guy and tell him, do you know what you're doing and why? You have any idea the reward that you will get for being good to Israel? When all the presidents, you know, you will collect the reward of every president before because you did the job. You know what I'm saying? I'd love to tell him that. I'm sure, I'm sure it would make his day. <laughs> that is until the next impeachment charge. He had a rally recently in Ocean, somewhere in New Jersey, right? In uh, Wildwood or something. Denver. Yeah. So. You should know his rallies are messianic. It, it's ridiculous. You never heard something like that. He's got, you know, 40,000 people in the arena, and there's another 50,000 people that have to turn away. Which president in history ever had such a turnout? It's messianic. I don't know if he sees it that way. Because everybody intuitively knows. It's interesting how the neshama knows. Even though consciously it doesn't. But everybody's neshama knows. Even the goyim doesn't make a difference, right? That there's something special about him. And it's not because he removed the regulations. There's something about him that has a certain charm. Which is interesting. Either you love the guy or you hate him. There's no in-between. And that's exactly what the Messianic era is. Either you love him, means you love the good part that he's doing, you know, that he's changing America and so on, or you hate him because you are part of the Sutton, and you hate this guy because he's bringing the gula in, in his part. I mean, he's not the Messiah, but he's contributing tremendously to the gula. You never saw such, such a, what's called a dichotomy. How, do you, how can a president be, you either hate him or love him? And you don't hate him or love him because of what he did. You hate him or love him because who he is. That's messianic. People don't realize when you look at a rally, you're looking at a messianic rally. It's astounding to think that way. You know? So could you imagine if this is the reception? You know, I, I once said, I once mentioned, you know, I was once uh, listening in my car to the radio, you know, and they had this guy who was a legendary Pinch, a uh, pitcher, what was his name? Nothing. Uh, oh wow! And anyway, he was in a stadium, and there were 50, 60,000 people screaming their heads off for this guy. Uh, he's a Hispanic. Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, anyway, it escapes me. Anyway, you know, uh, he was a legendary pinch hitter. No, his name is not really. Is it somebody? Who? Fernando. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, anyway. So, I, what's his name? Fernando Valenzuela. No, no, if you say it, I remember it. But anyway, I said to myself, it's unbelievable. What's unbelievable? <clears throat> that this guy's one of he's a pinch, uh, I think he's a, he's a uh, pitcher, whatever, you know, uh, and so on. If this is what people do to a pitcher, I mean, big deal when you think about that. All he does is he knows how to throw a ball. It's a real talent, but come on, you know? You know? Could you imagine? Let's think about this. In the end of time, when God will appear and say, okay, the Jews did it. The tikkun is complete, right? Do you know what's going to happen then? The entire creation, the hundreds of billions of angels, all mankind, all the shadim, you know, everybody that has a life are going to scream at the top of the lungs and go, Yahoo. <laughs> yeah, they're going to scream and scream with joy, yay, what they were screaming for this guy. 
But it's not going to be a stadium. It's going to be the entire universe. Could you imagine? And you're sitting there, and you're with the Jewish people, and they're like in the center, you know? And the whole mankind, the whole universe, the billions and billions of malachim are going to be looking at you, the Jewish people. Could you imagine how you'll feel? It'll be overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. And then the world will recognize what the Jews have done. That they brought the, uh, the divine presence back. You know. Anyway. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh,